Hello and welcome to the Foreign Influence Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Nikolai. And we are joined today by Niall Bowie. He is a reporter with the Asia Times out of Hong Kong, uh, and quite a bit out of Hong Kong. He's actually been there covering all of the events in Hong Kong. Of course, there have been protests and riots and police responses. Uh, It has been an intense time in Hong Kong. Uh, with many issues coming up over uh, sovereignty and freedom of rights and all sorts of things. But, uh, Niall, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. It's great to have someone on that actually knows what he's talking about. It really is. It makes us sound all the much better. Exactly. All the more better. Yeah. I haven't started talking yet, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed, hoping for the best. So, um... So first, let's hear a little bit about you. So as I said, a reporter with the Asia Times. Talk about the Asia Times and your experience here in Asia. Okay, so Asia Times is a publication that's been going on since, um, it's been around since 1995. Um, In various different iterations, it was bought over the current ownership in 2016. And since then, it's it's tried to uh, relaunch itself as this sort of continental um, pan-Asian, you know, uh, all digital source for, for information. We've got a lot of editorial commentators, reporters on the ground in various places. We've got bureaus in in Bangkok, Beirut, in Seoul. So it, it's it's nicely covered, and um, I think the publication is, has grown a lot in, by strides, you know, in recent years. So I've been working with them since uh, 2013, actually. But I would sort of say I became really enmeshed as a correspondent from seven, uh, September 2017. Um, so my work with them as a reporter, I've covered some of the big stories in the region. So the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, the Malaysian elections last year, looking at some of the things that the Malaysian government has done vis-a-vis Belt and Road. So looking at the big global development uh, initiatives, you know, by the U.S. and China in Southeast Asia. So I'm a Southeast Asia guy um, and covering, of course, things that go on in Singapore as well and how it's sort of navigating all of these these tides and what have you. Um, so as we mentioned before the recording, I, I walked into the Hong Kong story um, by accident, um, by happy accident. So um, I, uh, I was there in June, or early June. Later in that month, I had, I had been approved to take part in an international trade uh, training journalism training course by the Hendrick Foundation, and um, that's all about you know basically a, a boot camp for reporting on trade issues in Asia, things like the trade war, and that was been tremendously helpful. Um, but basically, I was there in early June because I had wanted to report on the Tiananmen vigil, which is the 30th anniversary of the vigil. That was when the all of the the movement on the extradition bill was just sort of starting starting to come up in the previous months there had been it was announced in february and uh, there had been some some street marches and that sort of thing but nothing on the scale of like the million man march we saw in june 9th i think um so i basically was in town i had i'd read into the story i had read a lot about hong kong and what the situation was like in the city ahead of this vigil so when the extradition story popped i was sort of there and well positioned to cover it and i just sort of went out with my camera my recorder and just went out and and spoke to people and and just filed stories on it and just sort of touch and go and kept on it and here we are four months later and it's uh the city's on a precipice it's not a happy situation and i think there's a i'm very conflicted about it to be to be honest with you you know oh yeah yeah but how how so Uh, uh well i think the movement 
Um, I'm very sympathetic to the liberal aspirations and all of that. And, it's hard and, not to be, right? Yeah, it's hard not to right. be, exactly. Yeah, and and um, it has tremendous support in Hong Kong society as well. It's hard exactly to say how much, but this is surely something when we've seen those massive marches, maybe maybe more than a million people, two million, that's what the organizers say. Um, you have families with prams and really, really well represented uh, among society. And it's clear that this is grounded in the broken promises of, of more democracy, universal suffrage and all of that. Um, but it's the tactics and the underlying um, localism and, and these sort of things that really rub me the wrong way. And just seeing some of the videos that are coming out say week by week, it seems to be getting uh, more intense and, and, uh, and, and more precarious. And it's just, I find it quite tragic to see things taking this route because there are, there, there are many more constructive ways to go about this, you know, and I just don't feel that the violent tactics uh, sustain the moral high ground. And yeah. I think this kind of movement with the kind of goals you're, you're after, you know, that's, that's what you want to strive for to keep that moral high ground. Well, you look at history, right? And any fight for freedom in history is not as clean as yeah. we would like to think mm. it was, True. right? Absolutely. So when you see these tactics, yes, they're very discouraging in the short run. You have to look and go, well, is this what it takes? But I agree, my sympathies start to fade away when I see mm. cops lying on the ground being attacked with hammers and steel bars. Uh, but then that doesn't mean that people should get shot. It is. It's a very conflicting... It's, it's very complicated. But I yeah. do wonder, and we touched on this last time, up to what extent one can contain the violent nature of these protests at the level where there's millions out on the street, right? Yeah. There's always going to be people... Yeah, there's going there. Yeah, yeah, and in that sense, it's amazing that there hasn't been a casualty exactly. yet. Exactly. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we can't call out both sides for for crossing the line. You know, fully yeah. agree. True. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I do have the, those five points. Right. So yeah. before we started, you talked about how there were yeah. kind of five points that you wanted to make about this. So. Right. Uh, sort of have the, at it, sir. The precursor here. So yeah. um, just want to. I'll be counting this. them down. <laughs> <laughs> I want to preface this uh, by saying I'm not an academic or, a, or an expert in Hong Kong, but these views I'm sharing are just my impressions as a reporter right. covering this. And um, so, this is ultimately about Hong Kong finding its place in the post-colonial world. Broadly speaking, uh, this is both about value, values such as democracy and rule of law, as well as an arguably more so the assertion of a distinct Hong Kong identity. So, the protests are, are a response to broken promises of democracy, and they're Political demands, these demands are grounded in a fuller realization of the democratic aspirations set out in the Sino-British Joint Declaration and, and the Basic Law, the city's mini-constitution, which, which does set out as the ultimate goal a kind of universal suffrage. Right? Um, so despite the liberal aspirations, my personal view is that the, the, the movement also shows clear signs of localism and nationalism, which mirrors the nationalist populism of the West, both in terms of the anti-outsider sentiment and nostalgia for a bygone past. Um, in contrast with past protest movements in Hong Kong since the handover, protesters today have embraced violent tactics and there is a high degree of passive support for these tactics from mainstream society because it's seen as the only way to get results. And the final point here is um, 
These events in Hong Kong have been very polarizing, and especially in the mainland. Many in China viewed these protests as xenophobic and driven covertly by the West. That's the narrative that comes out of the Chinese media. And the turmoil in the region, I mean, the turmoil in Hong Kong has, has drifted further afield and played into the confirmation bias of countries further afield here that are skeptical of getting, giving citizens greater freedoms to protest. Mm, okay. So. Boy, there's a ton to unpack there. A ton. <laughs> Many interesting things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to settle in, folks. We're going to be here for a day or two. Get <laughs> yourselves a cup of coffee, people. Yes. <laughs> but then, well, where do then, you want to start? So there, you're saying it's also a struggle to find your own independent identity, a reaction to broken promises of democracy. Why now? Uh. Well, why now? So since the Umbrella Movement, right, in 2014, there has been instances of, of tightening, tightening of civic space there. You see a lot of the leaders that led the Umbrella Movement. And, and again, this was a protest movement yeah. to, uh, what was that one specifically? Over that, was, that was more for universal suffrage. Okay. Um, the, the constitutional amendment being passed at the time, there was a proposal for universal suffrage, which was basically, didn't go far enough in terms of, you know, uh, a direct vote. They want genuine universal suffrage in terms of directly electing who will be the chief executive of the city. And the proposed, uh, the proposed legislation basically allowed for pro-Beijing groupings to select uh, the chief executive. Uh, and then who would right. from there be directly elected? So, since so these the, were big protests five years ago. Yeah. And 79 now today. Days, uh -huh. 79 days of occupation. So that, that was very different from what we see today, where today it's, it's sustained sort of protests in many districts of Hong Kong and uh, violent tactics, what have you, street battles. Whereas then it was, you know, kind of a carnivalesque occupation of, of, Admiralty area and, you know, near the government headquarters, LegCo. Um, and, you know, you had uh, volunteer tuition centers. You had, you know, bathrooms with, with, uh, with, with you know, uh, supplies and showers and, you know, face creams and all of this. And you, you, you had, you had uh, more of a... You got to have smooth skin if you're going to be... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Very important. Yes. Civil society, you know, was, was really, really quite well represented there, you know. And, and uh, I would say it had more of, more of a peaceful democratic ethos, you know, if you... You look look at the reports and things like that, yeah. and, and uh, read read about it. Um, very different from what we see today. And a lot of the the organizers of that, there were clear clearer leaders back then. Nowadays, it's hard to tell who the leaders are. Mm. And I would say it's largely leaderless. It's uh, largely organized online and dis decentralized encrypted communications platforms. Um, so there's there's no even leader that I can say who can come out. No one with the moral authority to say, okay, guys, let's pull back. There's it's 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 really kind of taken on a life of its own. Whereas mm. before in the umbrella movement, you had a clear sort of leaders, like Benny Tai, for example, lawmaker, um, uh, and uh, law professor, excuse me. Um, but you had clear clear figures who were detained, uh, persecuted, what have you. Um, various things like the tightening of the media. Also, precursor to this extradition uh, bill, you had um, the big case of the, the booksellers. So you had some of these booksellers oh, in Hong yeah. Kong who oh, were yeah. brought over the mainland and they showed up on mainland TV giving uh, you know, um, uh, confessions and all of that. And they're publishing sort of political gossip. You know, I think these books were sort of uh, marketed to mainland visitors and all of that. So, mm. so this sort of just drew a line in the well, sand. Well, they were specifically about President Xi. Yes. yes right? Yes, so that exactly. didn't go over well. Right. But yeah, right. these people yeah. were disappeared out of Hong Kong. 
the, and against the backdrop of this, you do have uh, Xi Jinping's leadership style, which is distinctly different from previous Chinese leaders. Yeah. Um, more of a more of an authoritarian, uh, autocratic approach from him in in, in many ways, and I feel like uh, the Chinese, uh, sorry, the, the the Hong Kongers looking at what's going on in Xinjiang, for example, and you know they're they're sort of relating to that, and um, they're feeling like uh, the denial of universal suffrage and uh, various things like this. It's all it's all sort of sort of built up, you know. Mm. The extradition bill was sort of seen as a, a red line, um, and you had. Uh, business community come out against it. You had, you know, bar association, uh, really broad social sort of uh, uh, unitary opposition to this. And um, now I feel that they've they've succeeded in that goal and having it withdrawn. And I feel like we look at the, the some of the rudderless violence we see today, and I wonder, isn't there a more constructive approach here? You know, in terms of the five demands, for example, the protesters now have five demands. Um, one of them, a couple of them relate to the um, uh, independent inquiry of police conduct and, you know, um, universal suffrage and um, politically very difficult for the, for the government to adhere to all of these things. But why not, um, like, like in the Umbrella um, movement, you know, they set up an unofficial sort of people's referendum on universal suffrage and about a fifth of the electorate took part and voted and, you know, it was totally peaceful and, you know, the Chinese media was furious, but, you know, it's a constructive approach and why not have a referendum on the, on the five demands, you know? Why, mm. why not do this sort of thing, sort of make, a, make mirror legislative bodies or something, you know? There, there are creative ways to sustain the movement and to sustain international interest, to sustain the moral high ground. Um, but unfortunately, I think, I think the anger and the fear, all of it has sort of congealed into what we're seeing now. And it's sort of very hard to put a lid on it. Um, you know, and, and again, it's that passive support from a lot of the mainstream society that may not agree with everything, but there is this sense that, you know, this actually has gotten results in terms of getting the extradition bill pulled, you know. Um, and I feel like there is, can we say, a bit of, um, bit of an agreement between sort of the more moderate side here and the more black shirt, you know, radical side where they they sort of are not going to condemn each other they're not going to throw each other under the bus here you know they, they do have to be unitary and stick together and that's something that's different from before hmm. black shirts being the protesters in yeah. opposition to yeah. counter protesters or perhaps thugs that wore white shirts uh and were attacking protesters mm. Mm. yeah mm. so but is this still is this still a goal-driven protest at this point yeah do you think that if those demands are met that the protests would calm down or do some people just like to watch the world burn and has it gotten completely out of hand one of the slogans is um if if we burn you burn with us so there's almost like a nihilistic edge there um if we break down some of the demands um universal suffrage i would say you know that is the the the, the clearest one, the, the most, um, what can we say? Um, I mean, the basic law does set this out as, as, as a goal. So if you were to have genuine universal suffrage, that, and, and moves, if Carrie Lam would come out and say, you know, let's, let's look at political reform, perhaps that would, that would take some of the fire out of this. But if you look at things like the independent um, inquiry of police conduct, Carrie Lam's only support base right now are the police. You know, and the police are under unprecedented strain. You see some police groups that have sort of said she's not effectively handling the situation. We need harder emergency laws. You know, there is precedent in Hong Kong history where 
you have had these independent inquiries. And right now, the uh, the police watchdog is sort of on the case, but they don't have the power to summon witnesses and people. There's a lot of distrust in the institutions right now, so people don't see that as going far enough. But the reason she she can't do that, she can't she can't make that uh, she can't throw the police under the bus. Right. Um, mm, so yeah. there are various limitations. You know, there was this amazing uh, leaked recording of Carrie Lamps. Um, addressing some business people that Reuters had leaked, and um, they provided the full transcript, and sh she is constrained in the sense that she said herself, you know, I've got to serve two masters under the Constitution, I've got to serve the people of Hong Kong and the central government. So her room to maneuver is really, really very limited. And um, I feel she she's learned a lot from this. I sort of get the sense that she's well-meaning, but she's obviously um, misread the situation, and she's push through this legislation bill in a very ham-fisted and rushed way, and her leadership is very poor, you know, and um, I think if she wanted to resign, you know, that that would be an off-ramp that, that people would welcome, mm. you know. Um, well, she tried, right? Didn't she offer or try, and there was some, she was told by Beijing, nope? There were some reports to that uh, to that effect, okay, but, but she not sort of said she had sort of said no. Uh, that right. that didn't that wasn't the case. You know? ah, okay, um, but but it is a goal driven movement, um, and it's it's hard to see what happens. You know, do, does Beijing does it have a history of giving concessions to renegade to renegade <laughs> provinces? I, I don't think so. Not yet. a well documented. Not, not in the last four thousand or so years. And, yeah, and you know, I I, I don't see. Um, there was a report in the Financial Times today about about uh, the um, Chinese government tightening. You know, mm -hmm. as a result of all of this, not not. Uh, you know, basically retreating to advance, which I think would be the better thing to do here, is giving Hong retreating Kong more to advance, yeah, uh, giving giving Hong Kong more autonomy and, ah. and allowing them to you know handle their affairs and and you know just sort of message received, guys. You know, ah. um, we'll look at political reform and we'll we'll stick to the book here on basic law. So the Chinese government it would to advance it would retreat and sort of you know. But only for now anyway, right? Mm. Because a yes. clock is ticking here that right. in, what, 2047, uh, all the current deals are off, right? And Hong Kong is totally, uncontroversially part of China proper. Yes. yes. So and this, in some ways, has just moved a lot of issues that we're going to blow up yeah. 20 years from now to today. 27 years, I guess. This is this is the real knot of it, and a lot of the demonstration demonstrators out in the streets, they're going to be in their 40s and 50s when when 2047 rolls around. So it's their future that has the big question mark. So your earlier oh, question that's was why now? Why now? That's <laughs> mm. another factor of it as well, because they they see this clock ticking down, and um, their their one country two systems arrangement will officially mm. expire at that point. Yeah, I mean. Basically, I think what if the Chinese wanted to give an olive branch to the mainland, um, they would say maybe we'll look at having one country, two systems, you know, extended for another 50 years because it's clear that, that Hong Kong is distinct. And But, of course, that's that's a pipe dream, you know, at this point um, yeah. based on what the, the, the track record has been. And the track record is assimilation, uh, greater assimilation of Hong Kong, Macau, and Shenzhen, you know, into an economic area and um, – um, Basically, not a genuine universal suffrage, but a kind of a, a controlled democracy with Chinese characteristics, which um, <laughs> some segment of the of the population. Isn't that the finest euphemism you've ever heard? Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's the best kind of democracy, though. <laughs> yes. Some segment of the population they're fine with that social contract, but yes, uh, yeah, but, right. but, but yes, the, a lot of the youngsters who are going to be what percentage is that? This is zero point. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible to know, right? There's no way Maybe to know. Maybe we should have a referendum. It's, I don't know. 
<laughs> well, exactly right. You look at the umbrella protests, though, and, and after that, you had elections in uh, legislative council elections in 2016, and a fifth of the vote went to localist radical candidates from the umbrella movement. So that goes uh. to show that a fifth is 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 out of fully supporting this, you know, uh, yeah. and and well, you or say more. Lo- you said localist a couple of times. Yeah. What what's that mean? So localist? localist is the idea. Okay, I'm going to be very careful with my words here. Oh, um, localist no, no, please don't. This could is, get interesting. <laughs> it's the idea of Hong Kong indigenous, you know, basically uh-huh. Hong Kong for Hong Kongers. It's sort of, you know, protecting heritage. It's protecting, you know, um, Hong Kong's uh, autonomy and, you know, pushing back against mainland, uh, you so know, but, but this tightening is- xenophobic across the board or only towards well, china or see this is the tricky thing i don't want to paint this as a as a totally xenophobic thing because you know you can go you can go and you can see some videos on social media and you can see some things where there are for example yesterday jp morgan banker he stood up in front of a bunch of black mm-hmm. protesters and said in chinese we're all chinese guys you know you know enough and Gets he gets beaten up. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, ugly scene. It was a pretty yeah. ugly scene, you know. Yeah. And you have things like that. You have some pretty um, nasty uh, uh, signs and things like that uh, against the um, in opposition to some of the Chinese traders that will come across the border and buy up things and take it back. And you know, there there are legitimate local grievances under there. But um, to what extent uh, is this xenophobic? It's 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 hard to say across the board. Um, but I mean, for example, I interviewed a, uh, a young woman just a couple days ago, and um, the first thing she said is, "We're we're against the Chinese government and its authoritarian system, not the people." Mm, right. Okay. So, so there is a difference of opinion there. But I do feel that if more and more of these videos are coming out where people are expressing pro mainland sentiment, they're getting beaten up. So we do have to make the yeah. dividing line there mm. between vandalizing property as Absolutely. symbolic and and lynching people. I mean, yeah, this is yeah. too much. Um, so, so it is hard well, to. There say. hasn't been lynching, lynching, no, but, there but there's been, been yeah, thanks people getting beaten yeah. up and people getting beaten up. Yeah, yeah. no one went Gaddafi on anyone. No, no not it, not yet, not yet, right? But and, but and if you've not seen these videos, I mean, it's it's intense. There's yeah. fire bombings and yeah. property destruction yeah. and people getting punched for expressing their viewpoints and yeah. <clears throat> beaten with rods and sticks. And of course, there's been two live fire incidents mm. uh, with two protesters getting shot by police, neither of whom has died yet which is really good. But, you know, this raises a point. What is the most intense scene you have been a part of? Well, um, I have to tell you, I've been, I've been on my recent trip, which is late September, early October, to cover the fifth mm-hmm. anniversary of the Umbrella Protest and the October 1st, uh, 70th anniversary of the PRC. Um, just prior to this, or while this was going on, we had a report of an Indonesian reporter who was sort of standing on an overpass and was shot in the eye with a rubber bullet. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's obviously spooked me. and um, Lost his vision lo- yeah, in that eye. Uh, lost her vision. And, um, her, okay. Yeah, and, um, you know, there are you know, the, the live fire cases, and prior to this trip, you know, we had seen live fire being shot as a warning so uh, obviously the sh- the fuses have gotten shorter um so that was that was something that i i decided to have a different strategy this time is more to stay in the back and away from the front lines yeah um so and that's what a lot of the demonstrators do actually um like for example this 
on October 1st, I witnessed an assembly in front of the liaison office near the LegCo building. And, you know, you, you, you had... This is like the official Chinese government office, yeah. Yeah, uh, sorry, not the liaison um, office. It's the, um, uh, it's the PLA garrison, sorry. Oh, yeah. The other wow. story I'll tell relates People's Liberation Army. Yeah, the yeah. other story relates to the to, to the um, liaison office. But um, so what I saw, you know, you have the Braves. You know, the, the bravest among them are up there in the front, <laughs> battling with police, and they've got you know like kickboards taped to their arms, and helmets, oh, and yeah. gas masks, and wow. metal rods, and they're you know doing battle and uh, and avoiding the the beanbag rounds and, and the tear gas and whatever, um, throwing bricks, and you know they they have this this strategy where they'll they'll rip bricks up from the pavement. And, 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 you know, oh, it's wow. really, really unique strategies. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically you have Braves in front and you have hundreds and hundreds of people falling behind that are, you know, um, taking metal barricades off the side of the road and tying them together in a triangle with these, with these uh, plastic ties and rushing them to the front. And people, you know, tearing up bricks, rushing them to the front. So you do have, like, the, the, the really unique tactics, extremely well organized. So this is highly coordinated. Highly coordinated. For supposedly a leaderless movement. Uh, and, and you know, incredible. that opens the door to say, well, who's who, who's paying for all this? Who, who Who's, you know, what intelligence agency is A lot is of rumors oh. swirling around uh, <laughs> yeah. around the foreign influence. But no Foreign interference. Gun. No yeah. smoking gun as far as I can see no. it, though. Yeah. Um, and, and it is hard to say. But, cause, you know, so, so I, but some of them are flying American flags, which I just think, Tactically, oh. politically, I mean, is just a huge mistake. Yeah, it's just, it's just uh, stupid. Did, did, have you talked to anyone about that? I did. Um, yeah, what, so basically, they uh, there there are various explanations for for the American flag and and the colonial flag, for example. So yeah, and the colonial it's, it's flag shaming the current sovereign, it's Beijing. You know. Okay. Um, and and perhaps. An expression of identity, a, a, a desire for more international sovereignty. Oh, so, so, sorry, not sovereignty, but um, solidarity, uh, solidarity from the outside. And um, I, I interviewed one American flag waving protester, and and he's you know asked him, "Are you being paid or whatever?" And and I just up front just asked him, and, and he was like, "No, you know, it's the the Chinese media that they want to point this to the foreigners. I'm flying the flag because we want the U.S. Hong Kong Democracy Democracy Act. We want more American support." Some of them will say outright they want Trump to liberate, and I agree, all of this oh, wow. is a really misplaced strategy. I mean, yeah, uh, very silly. Um, and I've interviewed people who fly the. Uh, the colonial flag and you know one older guy in his 50s straight up said we want the british government to come back and rule us you know oh, wow. so, so that that reminds me of you know and i bet well, they do it or the dutch <laughs> they, if they invited the dutch <laughs> yes. i'm sure we because the dutch got, are always willing and ready to have a call we'll always step in yeah. <laughs> the, the, the british have nothing nothing pressing at home to deal with at the moment. no <laughs> they've got plenty of they're bandwidth. fine they're fine <laughs> Um, so, so this, these are some of the strategies that they're trying to get support from, and they express this support in anti-communist terms. And I think they do egg on a, they egg on the West to view this in Cold War terms. You know, mm. um, uh, and, or the New Berlin. Yeah, the New Berlin. You know, the ba mm. Baltic Way protests and all of this, and it's a, you know nice commemoration of you know. Of, Baltic countries that were opposed to Soviet rule and all of that 30 years on. Mm -hmm. um, but the messaging here is, is you know, uh, basically in, in anti-communist and Cold War terms to the West. That's, that's, the, that, that's the solidarity. That's the terms of the solidarity, how, how they're trying to communicate it, the sense of urgency there. Uh, what do you yeah, think? I don't know. Not very engaging would... to me. I don't know. It's, it's creating 
Well, it's all how in it's all in how you would frame the end game on this. Yep. What do you see as the possible end game? And if you see an independence end game as your only end game, then sure, fly the American flag, fly the colonial flag. Hmm. But Beijing is Come never on. gonna permit that. No. no. Never, and, ever, ever. No one's ever going to step in. So it's They're completely not, not over it's completely Hong Kong. naive. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, so when Beijing see, sees all of these and mainlanders, they see people flying these American flags. I mean, it's so polarizing and you yeah, know, it, just piss them off. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Absolutely, you know, um and the other aspect of this we didn't discuss was the trade war, the backdrop of the trade war. So all of this sort of this anti-communist pitch is going on while this bitter trade war is playing out uh, between the two two powers here. And there are some uh, elements of the Hong Kong protesters, some some ideologues and people like that who who want Hong Kong to be brought into the trade war, that want the tariffs that are being leveled against China to be to be brought on Hong Kong to bring the pressure on. Um, and I've seen slogans. I mean, uh, uh, the day after on October first, I'm on the tram and I'm looking all around and uh, just reading all the slogans. It's amazing, you know, mm. that were graffitied around the city the day before. And some of them are uh, some of them are typical, but some of them were quite offbeat and interesting. And one was um, the U.S. will win the trade war. You know? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And another thing. Wait, they're just poking the bear or poking the dragon every conceivable way that. And you know, they fake socialism, CCP. Sure. You know, um, with capitalists, it's it's crony, crony capitalism, and all of that. So, yeah. so there are a lot of really unique uh, slogans all around the city. But it's a polarized city, and um, uh, basically, the, the reporting that I've done in in recent days about this is just sort of trying to get to the fact that this is a real difficult knot for 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 Beijing to to really untangle and to look at, and this this will drag on. You know, for for years and probably decades to come, wow. uh, for commemorations to come, it will ripple on. I'm sure. So uh, this 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 is a story to watch. You know, and how how Beijing manages to, you know, are they conciliatory? Are they going to tighten more? Perhaps perhaps they'll do both. Perhaps they'll try and be conciliatory in tone and keep keep a hands off approach for a little while until people have their guard down and maybe maybe they'll throw a curveball. It's it's hard to say, but the view that a lot of people have is that. Um, you know, you're going to see this similar, like the post umbrella tightening um, of, of you know chipping away at Hong Kong's erosion. That's that's perceived. That's how they. That's how people in Hong Kong, a lot of them, perceive it. Uh, you could have that uh, uh, another round of that coming. You know, so things like maybe cracking down on on. Uh, legislators who who get elected who don't have the right views, you know, uh, maybe preventing mm. them from from taking their oath or or, or disqualifying their candidacy because we are supposed to have district council elections in November and Carrie Lam oh, has spoken next about next month. Yeah, uh, Carrie Lam has spoken <laughs> it's about a good environment for an election. <laughs> yeah, canceling these elections <laughs> wow. because of the, the climate, you know, and and um, we we do have to acknowledge uh, before we get into outlook. Soon as someone dies, whether if, if it's a cop that's beaten up. You know, mm. and dies, or if it's, it's a protester shot live around or whatever, yeah. changes the dynamic. You know, makes it more incendiary. And uh, I just worry now that, you know, this sort of thing is on the precipice, and you're going to see really nasty violence where things like lynching become possible. Wow. Well, yeah. So we are starting to get future looking here. Um, I believe you wrote a story recently about how this is actually kind of rebounded to where we are. We're in Singapore. Uh, that Singapore could be a beneficiary potentially of this yeah. uh in what way so i've written a few stories about that um not so much that singapore could be but there are some anecdotal evidence and various reports that um point to 
private wealth inflows into Singapore since this uh, situation yeah. began in uh, Hong Kong okay. uh, since June. So um, things like corporations looking at Singapore, which actually has cheaper Absolutely. office rents. Yep. Um, you know, there's like hotel occupancy in, in Singapore is like one of the highest it's ever been. Uh, there are lots of uh, things to point to, like companies that are holding events here instead of there. Um, but the, the, the Singapore perspective on this, if you listen to the ministers here and the monetary authority, um, they say that in the whatever short-term gain Singapore can, can get from this is outweighed by the long-term pressures on global growth that will result from prolonged turmoil in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, they take a very enlightened view on this, that yeah. they uh, what's going on in Hong Kong now is not good uh, writ large for the region, and it will only sort of put... Uh, put further downward pressure on the region. And uh, Hong Kong and Singapore are some of the most trade-exposed economies in the world. They're bellwether economies, and both are teetering towards recession, Um, both as a result of the trade war, as a result of slowing growth in China, and as well as, um, you know, what we see in Hong Kong. Obviously, Hong Kong is more affected by that. But even here, where there's (laughs) no protest to speak of, uh, you know, we have... No, there's not. We have... uh, There shall be no protest, because everyone's perfectly happy. Yes. um, No, no. And uh, I, I, I've, I've interviewed uh, businesses and things like that um, here that have been been very much affected. Um, electronics manufacturers, oh uh, sure, uh, uh, Semicon yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. industries here have been really hit. Their supply chains are all plugged into China, and, mm. and they've been hit by the tariffs. So um, hard to see where this goes. But the Singapore consensus on this is that uh, this is this is going to be bad for the region and. Of course, if we read how it's covered in Singapore um, and in the local media, um, sometimes they'll take reports from the New York Times and they'll take reports from um, you know elsewhere that or South China Morning Post that are uh, very sy- sympathetic. And but there's also um, they give a lot of credence to the foreign interference narrative. Some of them, and they also sort of the implication is that if you give your citizens more room to maneuver, more civil liberties, more right to speak, it's a slippery slope, and you're going to get fire bombs, and you're going to get destabilization that's an interesting perspective yes i have thoughts on that that i will not share (laughs) (laughs) so we're we're gonna wrap up here nile uh any final thoughts um i just hope the situation sort of uh evens out and and i hope the cooler heads prevail here and um you know it's 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 a good fight you know that that we can all sort of get behind i mean yeah i agree these, these values are something that are important to hong kongers and you know it's it's uh it's not only that it's part of the basic law so stick to the, stick to the law. You know that's that's what I would say. Um, yeah. But but likewise, protesters too. You know, just just try and obey the rules if you can. But you know, I yeah. I don't think that counts for much. Excellent. All right. So well, Niall. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, thank you very much. For sh- yeah. It's really great to have a have, have a more insider's perspective on this and to get sense of on uh, the ground what's yeah. really going on in the on the ground here. Um, and it hasn't been a very upbeat episode. So while we wrap right. up, I'm just going to shoot off some good news. Yeah, so we always finish with the happy music. We're, we're, one sec before that. So, uh, nilebowie.blogspot.com? Or you can just go to asiatimes.com. Okay. But that, that's where I archive my stories, nilebowie.blogspot.com. You can just see what I've written, and you know, it's just where I keep whatever I've published. I just archive it there. And you're on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. at nilebowie.com. Okay, and we do our happy music here because things are always right, a bummer. Out, people. Yeah, what do you got? You got a happy story? So I'm we just can reading things here? from the Good News Network on Twitter. So apparently, the ocean cleanup makes history by successfully collecting the first plastic from Great Pacific garbage patch. That's pretty good. Oh, I like that. 
and the EU approves groundbreaking new right to repair laws requiring appliances to be easier to fix. There You'll you go. You'll be able to fix your iPhone. That's good. So now we've finished on a happy oh, note. I feel so much better. I like the oceans being uh, clean. Yeah. It's good. And I like fixing my iPhone. Think of the fish. Ah, who needs democracy when you have fish? <laughs> exactly. All right, again, Niall Bowie, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, Niall. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, listen to Foreign Influence. Get Find it in uh, all of your favorite players and uh, find it at our website as well. Thanks a lot. I'm Bill. I'm Nikolai. And thanks for listening. Talk soon. Thank you.